This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and thank you to all our listeners who sent emails and texts about their favorite podcasts of the year or authors they'd like to hear from in the new year after Lily Gordon and I did our annual wrap-up. Please continue to let us know your thoughts via Twitter or email. Today, I'm joined by Richard Kreitner to discuss his new book, Break It Up, Secession, Division, and the Secret History of America's Imperfect Union, published by Little Brown in 2020. The book could not be more timely as we process the assault on the U.S. Capitol just weeks ago. Richard is a con- Richard Kreider is a contributing writer to The Nation, who's also published in The New York Times, Boston Globe, Washington Post, USA Today, Slate, Raritan, and The Baffler. He also writes a newsletter about politics and history called only united in name. And I'm very pleased to welcome him to the New Books Network. Hi, Richard. Hi, Susan. Thanks so much for having me. Journalists, scholars, politicians, and uh, citizens often assume that calls for secession are political or historical aberrations. Our, Our founding myth is that the Civil War divided an otherwise united nation, and we soon reconstructed the nation for a more perfect union. But Break It Up argues that disunion is the hidden thread in the history of the United States, that American politics from colonial times to the present, you argue, have always included forces that have divided us. And the book gives us a more nuanced and comprehensive understanding of our contentious past with, I think you hope, an understanding, more understanding for negotiating our uncertain future. So the book argues that the United States has always been, quote, riven by race and religion, cleaved by class and culture, sundered by section and fragmented by geography, unquote. The United States was always a tentative proposition and an experiment that might fail at any time. And your book uses four errors to trace this theme of disunion. Um, You insist that asking these questions about unity are quote, a prerequisite for serious discussion about what we Americans want the future to hold for ourselves and this perennially divided nation. Um, Moreover, facing disunion assists in the work of building an inclusive multiracial democracy capable of combating climate change and building racial equality. And as the book starkly puts it, the U.S. should either finish the work of reconstruction or give up on the idea of the United States as currently conceived. Um, Before we focus on your analysis of the four errors and your findings, let me ask you about how you came to write Break It Up. 
You've written a previous book, a, a Traveler's Guide to Literary Sites Around the World. You've studied philosophy. You've driven around the United States for months, and you're a journalist and writer. So how did all of that lead you to focus on disunion and secession? And, and also, when did you begin all of this research? Sure, yeah. I came to the topic in late 2014 and spent a lot of 2015 and 2016 researching it and then sent it out to publishers um, the week of Trump's inauguration, which which ended up being a very fortuitous piece of timing. You know, everyone was very interested in division and whatnot. Uh, just a minor correction, my, my previous book, Booked, um, you know, it's kind of a coffee table book. I'm almost embarrassed to mention it in the same breath as Break It Up. And I started it after I started this one as kind of a side project at night. Um, so, you know, it's not like I turned from that subject to this one. Um, this, this is really my baby and my, I consider it my first book. Um, but, you know, it kind of emerged from a lot of different strands in my personal and professional lives um, and almost had a certain inevitability about it, like everything I've ever been interested in pointed towards towards this this subject in this book. Um, as you mentioned, you know, I've, I've traveled you know, widely around the U.S. I've been to 49 states, only uh, Oklahoma am I missing. And in those travels, I've always just kind of wondered about the unity of the country and whether it, it really makes sense as anything beyond like a vague construct, which is what Alexis de Tocqueville called the union. It, it was a fiction, really, that only existed in people's minds. Um, whether it really had any kind of real purchase on, on people's um, feelings about, about one another. Um, and then so in 2014, what was happening was the first real wave of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and I was in the New York Public Library one day. I was reading um, Charles Beard's Economic Interpretation of the Constitution, you know, the landmark work of, of American history that argued that the Constitution was in fact basically a, a conspiracy by the rich of that day to protect their power and property and, and privileges. Um, and I left the library and I was walking down the street and there was a Black Lives Matter protest that walked past me and a, a woman was holding a sign that said, the system isn't broken, it's fixed. And of course, she was talking about the criminal justice system and, and police brutality. Um, but that, that was essentially, that's essentially what Charles Beard was arguing, you know, as well about the Constitution. Um, and that just made me wonder whether the arguments that he was talking about in the 1780s and the, the function of the Constitution and really of, of the union itself, what role does it play in our, you know, economic struggles and, and political debates? Um, whether it still had some resonance today. You know, I was working at The Nation magazine at the time. I'm, I'm a contributing writer there now. And I was an archivist. Um, and the, the magazine was founded in 1865. My job was was to kind of go through the archives and find little bits and pieces that were of interest. But through that, I, I started reading a lot about the Civil War and about Reconstruction and those periods in American history. Um, and, by, you know, that's, that's kind of a non sequitur. But um, in, in 2014, you know, Obama had been in power six years by that point, had passed Obamacare, but really not much else and had come to rely on executive orders um, to do much of his his governing, you know, on climate change, uh, for instance, and on immigration, um, a, a con kind of constitutionally dubious mechanism. Um, I, I we, we all kind of thought uh, on the left uh, under the Bush presidency that now Obama was coming to rely on because it seemed like the, the, you know, Congress had become all but unfunctional, you know, non-functional. Um, where am I going with this? <laughs> um, you know, <sighs> no, you're going somewhere good. No, you're, we're, we're really interested in how people come to write the books that 
that they write. So no, please continue. It's 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 really helpful to situate how you got to the book you you wrote. Well, basically, I started having doubts about the entire progressive project of concentrating power and decision making and activism and energy in a central government. I, you know, that's kind of a legacy, not only of the first progressive era, but of course, of the civil rights movement, which, you know, relied on the Supreme Court under Earl Warren, for instance, to, to guarantee certain civil rights for, for Americans, and especially for African Americans. Um, and I just started to doubt whether that was really the way forward in an era where in 2013, the Supreme Court had already gutted the Voting Rights Act, for instance, um, and, and where even electing a, a president and a Democratic Congress in 2008 um, had not been enough to, to pass legislation um, and to make progress you know, on, on important matters like climate change, which you mentioned at the top. So I, I started to doubt whether membership, you know, whether the nationalization of politics was really such a good or such a progressive thing. And once I started doing that, I got interested in other people throughout American history who had come to the same conclusions, or at least were asking the same questions for what I considered to be noble, um, egalitarian, justice-oriented reasons. You know, I'm not interested in reviving, you know, a Confederate theory of states' rights. I am, I, I soon became very interested in two groups of people that I think were questioning the union ultimately um, for good for good reasons, and one was the anti-federalists, many of whom I think had a very sharp and extremely relevant today critique of whether bigness um, is compatible with democracy, and also mm-hmm. the abolitionists, uh, the radical abolitionists, you know William Lloyd Garrison and his followers before the Civil War, who argued for Northern secession from the Union as a way to protest and ultimately they believed undermine the institution of slavery. Um, and you know I don't think that either of those groups, um, you know, I don't think their politics can be applied through any analogy directly to today's issues, but the spirit of, of the, the skepticism of union, I think, I, I, I wondered in 2014 and 2015 whether that was a healthy, um, whether that could be a, a healthy uh, addition to progressive thinking, you know, to, to, to leftist thinking today, which a lot of people, you know, at the time were we're not really too interested in my colleagues at the nation. We're, we're not leaping to, you know, revive some kind of progressive states rights uh, theory. You know, Bernie Sanders was running for president and everybody staked their hopes on him. My, I, I kind of wondered whether the constitution as currently constituted would represent, would, even if he were elected, would be an obstacle to achieving anything that he was talking about. And I still have that question. Uh, but so just, just finally, just instead of, I, I, I still wasn't really comfortable writing some kind of manifesto, that we should break up the union. I, I really wanted to know more about the history of questioning the union, both for good and for, you know, ignoble reasons. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, thanks. So t- tell me a little bit how you did the research for the book. Uh, what kinds of sources did you use? What kind of archives did you access? People who were helpful and maybe a, a, a an aha moment in which you found yourself uh, surprised or by something or confirmed or you confirmed something that you'd suspected. Uh, yeah, yeah. let us know just a little bit about the kinds of materials you were using. One thing that's different about a Little and Brown book than an academic book is the lack of a bibliography. And though your uh, uh, quotations are highlighted at the end with notes that give the sources, there isn't that sort of long list to be really helpful to understand 
more of the kinds of uh, resources that you were using. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a trained historian. As you mentioned, I majored in philosophy at McGill University in Montreal. Um, and my, my joke all along has been that if I had studied history, I would probably have written a book about philosophy because I, was, I wasn't really that interested in um, – in school, <laughs> you know, so I got in, I got interested in history as kind of a side project. I, I helped get this museum off the ground in Montreal called the Museum of Jewish Montreal, which, which, um, you know, kind of exhumed the, the history of what's now the student's neighborhood, uh, but was, you know, um, in the 20th century, a very, you know, uh, a very Jewish neighborhood. Um, so that was kind of, you know, I consider that kind of my BA, uh, Myself, self-directed BA in history, and then you know, as an MA, it was uh, helping the nation craft their 150th anniversary uh, issue, which required a lot of of kind of historical research. Um, anyway, so so I didn't really know what to do with this idea once I had it because I was not you know a, an academic and I wasn't really trying to go to graduate school. My first move really was to see if anybody had written this book before, of course. Um, and I eventually realized that they hadn't. You know, the closest books that exist to it really are um, William Freeling's two-volume, The Road to Disunion, um, the first volume up to 1854, 1776 to 1854, and the second volume to 1861. But that really focuses much more on the South. It's 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 an exquisite and, and really masterly work, um, which I'm sure many of your readers are familiar with, your, your listeners. Um, but it really focuses on the South and it wasn't really getting at the larger question of, of disunion that I, that I wanted to, to investigate the Northerners who supported it, the people in California and Oregon before the civil war who supported it. And of course, you know, the years since the civil war and I, you know, a similar kind of not complaint, but, but difference between what I wanted to do, um, and what others had done, you know, Elizabeth Varon's, uh, disunion, which I think is subtitled the coming of the civil wars or something like that. The road to the civil war, um, is from 1789 to 17 to 1859. So it's, you know, it's covering in, in, you know, a wonderful, wonderful way, um, the years leading up to the civil war, but it doesn't talk about the colonial period, which I really wanted to look at. Why did it take so long for the colonists to form a union? Um, what was the nature uh, of their reluctance and in what way did it live on after they did form a union? And of course it, it stops in 1859. So like Freeling, it doesn't you know examine the, um, the reunion after the civil war uh, or the supposed reunion and the years since certainly not, you know, contemporary politics. Um, the, the the kind of major work the the aha discovery of wow this 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 is really onto something was David C Hendrickson's book the peace pa- uh, peace pact the lost world of the American founding which looks at the Constitution as a kind of international treaty um, among the thirteen states to to create this larger federal structure um, and that metaphor of 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 the Constitution as a peace treaty um, really kind of energized me and gave me um, an operating way to think about the entire question. Um, and then, you know, the work of Peter Onuf is, has been very important to me. Jack Green, um, who ben- ben- Benjamin Parks is uh, American nationalism was, was a good read. Um, but in any case, so I started looking around. I realized that nobody had really written this book that I wanted to write, which was the full 400 years, um, you know, cradle to, not quite grave, but <laughs> getting ever closer since I started the work for sure. Um, you know, kind of biography of the American Union, not looking at the story of the coming to be of the nation or the the this you know the uh, the de- the development of the nation, but of the ever present possibility of not nation of there not being a country. 
Um, I, I kind of thought of it as an X-ray view of American history, whereas you know what we usually see. Uh, this is, I don't want to go into this, but I took some classes on deconstruction um, at McGill uh, in the philosophy department, and I, I kind of saw it as, as as a work kind of in that vein, where you know uh, Derrida talks about the privileging of the present. Um, and I wanted to kind of deprivilege the present and talk about that which had always threatened to take place, which is disunion. But, but except for one, you know, exception, of course, never really quite did. Um, and you know, what I ultimately found, I did have to do a little bit of primary research. But what I ultimately found is that this story of the constant possibility of it all breaking apart has actually been told um, in a lot of books in a lot of different areas of study of American history in the colonial era. People have written about this in the revolutionary period, certainly in the antebellum era, um, less so in the 20th century, um, but nobody had tied it all together. So, so I kind of consider it really a work of synthetic history as well, um, which is tying together this theme that other historians have looked at, um, but, but haven't really connected the thread that I think goes from, you know, almost exactly 400 years, really from the arrival of the pilgrims, uh, in 1620 to, to the present. Oh, thanks. The book, it does, it covers a lot of ground and you are pulling from a lot of different sources that, that, that I noticed in the notes. Um, the fourth is actually, there's four sections in the book, but they're not really four periods because the last one is kind of a combination. Uh, but let's, let's jump to the first error, which is in part one. And, and, uh, it's called a vast, unwieldy machine, and it, it describes what you call the haphazard process of unification during the colonial and revolutionary periods, a process that you believe was only successful because of the common enemy in the British. So let's start with the core of part one, um, you know, knowing that this is a large book and we're not going to cover everything. But, but most scholars know that there were bitter disagreements over how some of the constitutional uh, at the Constitutional Convention um, in terms of protecting slavery, also tensions over representation. So would you just really briefly lay out what you, how you see disunion with a couple of examples that even people who consider themselves well-read in American history, you know, uh, might be surprised at? Like, why is this period so unwieldy, as you put it? Sure. Um, well, just about the metaphors and the titles for the sections, um, they, they kind of sprung from the, the sources themselves, where I noticed that people have always used different metaphors when talking about the union. Um, for some for some reason, it just it just brings that out in people, and you know this is kind of another another thing that that you can get from deconstruction or or you know really I got it from um, David Waldstriker, uh, who I should mention. Um, I took a course with him. You know, when I when I first had the idea, I, I considered it bringing it into the academy and studying um, for a PhD in either history or American studies. Um, and I took a course with David Wallstreicher, who's a wonderful historian of early America at, at CUNY here, um, who was kind enough to let me not audit his class, take it, but, but you know, dabble. Um, and I, I realized that it wasn't. B- big shout out to CUNY. I, my undergraduate is from oh, Queens College. Too. Wonderful. So all, we're all, all about them. And our, our former host, uh, Heath Brown, is also at oh, CUNY. Oh, cool. So, yeah, sorry no, their, their you, department is, can't help it. It's a little local sure, pride. Yeah, their history department is very nice. The, the Wall Striker and also the, the graduate students in his in his seminar were very kind in letting a journalist in to, to participate. Um, but, but this is something that I got from his work as well, which is that uh, – Arguments for the nation often imply the possibility of it of it of it um, falling apart. 
Um, and he's, he has a wonderful scene in his book, um, and in the midst of perpetual fets about, about festivals in, in the early Republic, where he's talking about the, um, what's it called? The national, the federal procession of 1788, when the, when the constitution was finally ratified, Philadelphia put on a, a parade to celebrate and all of these, um, artisans, created floats that they that they paraded through the streets of philadelphia that showed them doing whatever it was that they do so butchers are cleaving meat carpenters are building houses and stuff um and wall striker shows that this is their what they're doing is is showing the work of creating a nation but but it actually suggested um all the different ways that that the union could could fall apart um in any case so a vast unwieldy machine you know a machine can break down um, basically, and an experiment, as as you quoted, can fail, um, and so that's kind of the the hidden disunion in that metaphor of union. But in in the colonial era, as I just said, you know, it, it struck me right away that it took 150 years for the colonists to form a union, which is you know roughly the same period of time since the Civil War to today—a really long amount of time that we often skip over very quickly. So I wanted to look at. Um, you know who who was proposing a federation of the colonies, and why were the why did those plans fail? Um, so, so, you know, the first person to propose it was William Penn in the 1690s. And he thought that the, um, colonies needed to band together for, you know, some kind of mutual defense agreement against both the French and their, you know, indigenous allies. Um, and the crown, you know, he proposed this in to the board of trade in London was, was pretty interested in that proposal, but they knew that the colonies would never sign on to it because they were too different. They really had nothing in common and nothing to do with one another. Um, for most of the colonial period, there was re- very little trade between the colonies. There was very little um, travel between them whatsoever. It was very, very rare the individual who would travel through the colonies, you know, for either business or or pleasure. Um, so, and then uh, uh, in um, 1689, well, in, in earlier than then, in the early 1680s, the king of uh, of England smashed together the colonies of New England in something called the Dominion of New England, which was a forced union. He revoked the specific charters for each of the colonies, for Massachusetts, for Connecticut, and they joined, and he joined them under one kind of umbrella and appointed a governor over them um, because he thought that this would make them uh, more pliable you know, and, and, and trade uh, more profitable. Um, but there was a revolution against against uh, the Dominion of New England. I'm not sure if most people who are who are you know well versed in American history are familiar with this story. But but the first real American revolution was against the Dominion of New England. It was against uh, a union rather than an attempt to create one. Um, and this was in the wake of the Glorious Revolution in England, uh, which deposed Char- uh, James II. Um, and once the colonists got word of that, they they overthrew the governor that James had appointed over the dominion of new England and, and broke apart this, this forced confederation. So this is kind of a, a founding revolutionary act of disunion, um, as I see it. Um, and then just one, one more kind of episode from before the revolution that's worth talking about is Benjamin Franklin's Albany plan of union, which is probably what most people think of when they think about the idea of union before the, the revolution. Um, and of course, Franklin's famous join or die cartoon that, that shows a disjointed snake and he's he's arguing for the colonists of course to unite together against against the common enemy again the french and, and the indians um but you know what we what we don't really realize is that the colonists completely rejected that albany plan of union it wasn't simply that britain didn't want for it to happen britain britain did want want a union to form um but the colonists uh totally rejected the plan after the albany congress where franklin introduced it 
all these delegates go home and they introduce it to their to their colonial legislatures who debate it and and reject it completely every single one and there's a there's a funny um there's some there's a record of the the town meeting in Boston that was called to consider the plan, the Albany plan of union and they denounce it as you know a threat to their liberties and um those who had supported it like franklin as blockheads and and franklin gets uh, letters uh, reporting on on all of this and he's he's totally disillusioned he he realizes that the colonists will never voluntarily join together um, unless they're forced into it by Britain. And that, that's ultimately what I see the revolution as, is, is um, creating a union as kind of an accidental byproduct. You know, the colonists didn't fight a revolution to form a nation, which is kind of how we're, we're commonly uh, taught it, I think. They, they created a union uh, so as to, to fight a revolution. You know, it was a means to an end rather than an end in itself. And, and to me, that, that embedded a real weakness and a real uncertainty about what the purpose of the union itself was that lasted long after the revolution. And the tension that you sort of focus on throughout the book between the uh, affinity that we have as citizens of New Jersey or Oklahoma as opposed to citizens of the United States. Um, part two... And I just want to say, I really enjoyed the part about the um, uh, the um, uh, the revolution against the dominion of New England. That certainly was something that I had heard of, but had not really thought about in much detail, and certainly hadn't thought about it along with the Albany Plan and the way that uh, that you um, put it out in the book. So that was, I found that very, very helpful. And I should say at this point that this is a really accessible book that um, people should pick up whether or not they are very well-versed in American history. You certainly give them a lot of guidance, but if they are well-versed in American history, and I consider myself to be, I do American political thought, there's plenty there that I certainly didn't know or sort of knew. Um, and I think that it, it works at a variety of levels for a variety of readers. In part two, which is called Irre- Irreconcilable Differences, you focus on disagreement in the early republic. Um, you call that kind of a skipped period. I'm not sure if that's one thing in the book I'm not sure I agree with, but it's the period between the revolution and the civil war. And here you're focusing on the increase in the size of the nation, given the Louisiana Purchase, also Aaron Burr's attempt to break off parts of the country to form an independent empire. So why do you think, uh, and what do you think is missed in this history of the early republic by other historians or textbooks that we give to students to study American history? Um that needs to be that needs to be thought about sure. more. Yeah, I mean, for, in saying that it's skipped over, that's definitely more directed towards a popular general audience than than scholars. I mean, plenty of people study the early republic, um, and of course the antebellum period. But I think that when you think about the the you know the bestsellers that are out there, people are interested in founding father biographies, and they're interested in you know military histories of the Civil War or, or political histories of the eighteen fifties or something. You know, you don't you don't see a lot of. Um, talk about the Hartford Convention or um, the area right. of the No, a lot of, a lot of hagiography about George Washington right. and Thomas and Jefferson. The only, book really, and, yeah, no, I, only I, book really about politics between 1790 and 1850 that I can think of selling any copies in recent years is the biography of Alexander Hamilton by Ron Chernow, which um, I, and you know, I think a lot of um, you know, people have, have kind of problems with um, as, as a work of actual history. Um, 
in any case, you know, what, what, what has been missed, I think, is a few things. One, I think that we don't appreciate how little the Constitution did immediately to change the tenor of American politics um, after the critical period of the 1780s, um, you know, quote unquote. Um, you know, within a year of the Constitution being ratified and the new government getting set up, you have people in Congress talking about secession. You know, I don't think there's any real appreciation of that, of of how this this question, these doubts about whether the union would survive, whether it should survive, um, never actually went away. And you know, the 1790s. I mean, I mean, historians like um, Joanne Freeman have have written about this, of course. But the 1790s were, I would argue, the the second most you know um, divisive or tumultuous period in, in American history. Um, the one that we've just passed through might be the third, uh, you know, the first being the 1850s, I would think. Um, but so, so, so the, the, this idea of secession uh, immediately takes hold in the early Republic. First, you have, you know, largely Southerners associated with the new Democratic Republican Party um, who are dabbling with this idea of disunion um, in the, you know, the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions. Um, disunion, secession is, is really a threat um, that if, the Federalist Party, if, if the, the current government does not, um, you know, withdraw the Alien and Sedition Acts and, and, and you know, make other reforms, that we, we will secede from the Union, that we actually have that right. Jefferson himself argued that um, in a line that, that Madison ultimately convinced him to, to strike from, from the um, Kentucky resolutions. Um, but then as soon as Jefferson becomes president, of course, He's arguing for an indestructible union, um, and the Federalist Party, which helped create the government and and, and push the Constitution, um, are the ones who are arguing for secession. So that kind of, um, I think of it as kind of a seesaw, where the idea of secession goes back and forth depending on who's up and who's down, who's in power and who's out, um, and and that that lasts for really the first uh, forty years under the under the new Constitution. I think is kind of an underappreciated fact. Um, and then, and then just secondly in that era, the other thing that, that I really want to point up and, and hear the work of kind of younger scholars like um, Thomas Richards and Kevin Waite was really useful to me, was how the, um, the antebellum period, especially the 1840s, was defined by a lot more widespread skepticism of the union and questions about whether Americans wanted to be a part of it than we tend to think. It was not only North versus South, but very crucially East versus West. And a lot of the new settlers in Oregon and California, um, you know, who had who in moving there, especially in the early 1840s, before the Mexican-American War, they were actually leaving the borders of the United States. And they were OK with that. They weren't necessarily counting on the United States, you know, launching an aggressive war to conquer one half of Mexico's territory in order to bring them back within the borders of the United States. They kind of assumed or many of them did and many of them wanted to create a, um, a new, you know, federal republic on the West Coast. And, and what was most interesting to me about that is that a lot of people back East, politicians, editors, um, were perfectly okay with that. They were okay with, um, you know, a separate country existing on the West Coast in California and Oregon, um, and, and, you know, and being allied to the United States, but being totally separate from it. Um, and if, if th- you know, if things had gone that way, of course, the, we would not have one one nation from sea to sea. We would have we'd have several. Um, so that kind of that kind of question of a road not taken, or um, you know, uh, a sense of radical contingency that that something as fun that that we take to be as so fundamental and assumed as 
the geography of, of the country or where the borders are could have been so different is something that that was really striking to me and, and interesting. And of course, I don't think that today things are as radically open as that. But I think that there's something to be said for, of course, you know, a lot of a lot of historians do this, um, reclaiming that sense of contingency and making it feel alive to, to readers today. You mentioned the Cherno bibliography, biography, and I, we have too many people who are fascinated with uh, Lynn Manuel Miranda's Hamilton. For me, not to just ask you in three sentences, what is it about Cherno's book that doesn't get the Hamilton Burr um, relationship and uh, and um, events? Well, well, the book more than the musical does tell the story of how their their duel emerged from a, really a debate over secession. You know, Aaron Burr was, uh, and this is before the Burr conspiracy. I mean, this, this guy just couldn't get enough of being, you know, kind of, um, you know, more or less involved in various, various conspiracies. Um, but, but Burr was in cahoots or, or was in negotiations with New England Federalists at the time who stridently opposed the Louisiana Purchase because they realized that the admission of new southwestern states would detract from New England's power in the Union, especially if slavery was allowed to extend there and the three-fifths clause was applied there. They realized that New England would, would lose a lot of its say in, in Congress and in the Electoral College. So they were considering secession from the Union in 1803-1804. A lot of them, um, a lot of Federalist leaders in New England, most, most importantly Timothy Pickering. Um, one more shout out to a, to a, a scholar whose work was really important to me was Kevin Gannon, um, who who wrote a dissertation about Northern disunionism from about 1800 to 1840 or 1850, which is totally totally uh, wonderful and important. Um, but in any case, uh, and Hamilton got word of this because he was still a Federalist, even though he wasn't involved in the Northern secession movement. He was aware that that it was going on and that. Aaron Burr had had conversations, you know, Aaron Burr, then the vice president of the United States, had had conversations about running for governor of New York. And if he won, he would lead this movement of northern states out of out of the United States and possibly, you know, with to join with Canada or something like that. Um, and so so Chernow does tell this story. Um, the musical does not. The musical, um, as far as I can tell, kind of frames it as as a, a personal rivalry of, of you know, ambitious men. Um, but but Chernow does get a few things wrong, I think. I think he really radically underplays the extent of, of Hamilton's opposition to democracy as a motivating factor in his politics throughout his career, really, from about 1780 until his death. Um, and, you know, uh, and he plays up some pieces of evidence that I think um, – are, are not really that solid. So, so he, he uses a biography um, that one of Hamilton's sons published right around the time of the Civil War, um, which includes a couple anecdotes about, about Hamilton in his last days, which strike me as a, a little just so, a little too good to be true. The son was about seven or nine or 11 or something when Hamilton died. So I kind of doubt his, his memory of these things. But he, so, so the son and then Chernow quotes Hamilton saying things like, to break this union would break my heart. You know, and, and Chernow puts that, that quote on Hamilton's deathbed. Right. Um, Right. which is actually not at all 
the way it's used, even in Hamilton's son's biography. Um, and he says it several days before the duel. So there's a certain dramatization that's going on there, which I think is how you get people to make musicals out of your books, but is not, <laughs> it's just simply not historically accurate and it lends, you know, lends itself to this kind of heroization, uh, of, of long dead, you know, so-called founding fathers that I think is just tremendously unhealthy um, in a republic. Um, and then also just finally, the, the one thing that I think, and, and Chernow does quote this line, but but I, again, I don't think he makes enough of Hamilton's opposition to democracy. Hamilton's last letter that he wrote um, before the duel, or second to last letter, the day before he, he went over to New Jersey and um, for the duel is a letter to Theodore Sedgwick, who's a Massachusetts Federalist who is involved in this, in this um, Northern secession movement at the time. And Hamilton's trying to encourage him to, to convince all their other friends in new England to turn against secession. And he says to break, you know, um, to, to, to break up the union, basically to dismember the empire would be, would only make our real disease worse, which is democracy. It would make democracy more virulent in each of its parts. Which is, you know, to go back to the beginning, what the, the kind of thought that motivated me was perhaps to break up the union would make democracy more virulent in each of its parts. Um, and so, you know, I just kind of cheekily suggest in the book that that if, if we're all so into Hamilton these days, maybe we should take him at his word and, and wonder whether breaking up the union would be good for democracy. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Well, and this runs into the, the perennial problem with the word democracy. So as the 18th century writers are using it, they're separating it from liberalism. And what we, what we have as a government is liberal democracy, but we don't like those words because we don't like the word liberal anymore because we've decided it means something different, which is left. But from Jefferson's perspective, from Hamilton, well, we'll take Jefferson out of it, but certainly from Hamilton and Madison, they're thinking about popular sovereignty and lock and rule of law and rights and representation. Um, we've come to use the word democracy to mean those things, but they didn't. And so it's so hard to translate back and forth when, when we have changed what we mean by democracy. Because you don't really mean democracy. You don't mean like majority rules. You don't want to get rid of rights. And democracy is about 51% of the people wanting something, irregardless of whether it harms the other 49 or it enslaves them or if it takes away their rights. So it's, it's a really tough nut to crack when you're, when you're talking about American history and American ideology. Certainly. But isn't, Hamil is, isn't Hamilton talking about more people being able to vote? I think Hamilton is talking about balancing majority rule with rule of law, with markets, um, with rights. And so it's that tension between rights and majority that I think is at the heart of the of the of the knot, um, especially for for all of the founders, for Madison, for Wilson. So Wilson is somebody who's well anyway, we shouldn't go down that road. That's not it's not your book, but I, I I do think that I think you're right that there is this uh, pull between 
small d democracy, majoritarianism, and what I would call small l liberalism, uh, certainly in the founding and in the early republic. And but we've lost a language for talking about democracy that's consistent with the way they talked about democracy. Mm-hmm. Well, what interested me was was um, what they saw as the tension between what they considered democracy, at least, and the size of the government, you know, encompassed. Um, yeah. And and the, the, they kind of assumed, uh, whether you were for or against a large, you know, consolidated union, that it was incompatible with democracy. And the difference between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists was whether that was a good thing or not. Right. But dem- democracy, I think they're thinking a little bit about Athenian democracy. They're thinking about, can everyone assemble and can we make rules for ourselves? So can we be like, uh, as Jane Mansbridge wrote about decades ago, can we be the New England town hall? Is that is that the kind of democracy that they're that they're talking about coming together and making rules for yourself, not electing representatives. So I, I think they mean direct democracy, which is is which really does require all of us assembling and all of us being really political, as opposed to again a word that they weren't using, liberalism, uh, popular sovereignty, which means you can elect representatives. I mean, as um, as Madison is sort of pushes, we can. We can have uh, we can have some sort of majority influence, but it won't be direct. And I think it's that it's that directness. It's something that Jefferson wants more of, for example. And you see the tension there. Anyway, let's go to part three of the book, um, which is the Civil War actually coming. You call it the earthquake comes, and and you show that this uh, demonstrating. Uh, I'm sorry. You show that the appetite for disunion in all of the years before that that you've shown in parts one and two finally comes uh, to a head, and and you frame the entire book using Walt Whitman. And here you emphasize the the volcanic upheaval that he imagines in Specimen Days from eighteen eighty two, um, and I really appreciated the Walt Whitman. It actually brought me back to the period in my life when I read um, all of the Whitman. I want to spend very little time on the Civil War because I really want to talk about the end of the book and uh, and the kind of uh, suggestions that you have for us going forward. But but in terms of the Civil War, what did you find that was particularly surprising? And and what about this period solidified your belief that there was an irrepressible conflict between union and dissent? Sure. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd entered the book, um, the work on it assuming that what I would find in the 1850s was this rising Southern separatist movement, of course, that ultimately culminated in, in actually, you know, making the jump and, and pulling the trigger and, and seceding. Um, but what I really found is that that wasn't the case at all, that, that the South had allies in the White House throughout the 1850s, had control of Congress uh, for much of that time, and the Supreme Court, of course, you know, which, which handed down Dred Scott, which was a huge victory for the South. Instead, what you see, and there, there have been some, you know, books on this since I since I got started that have been really helpful and have made the same point. Um, the War Before the War by Andrew Del Banco is, is one that comes to mind. Um, instead, what you see is this rising Northern resistance movement, which is saying, whoa, this union is going in a direction that we really are not down with, that we, that we, that we didn't sign up for, um, and that we're not comfortable with. Um, and you see this, this rise of states' rights rhetoric um, in the North. You know, a lot of people kind of 
I, I think have written about the history of the Republican Party as, as a, some kind of irony that in recent decades they've turned towards states' rights when this is the party that was founded to save the union or something like that and, and, and to defend, you know, centralized government. Of course, you know, the laws passed by, by, by Republican Congress and, and president during the Civil War were kind of, you know, historic in, in, in their, their nationalizing nature. But before that, the Republican Party was indeed founded as a states' rights party um, by a lot of people who believed in, in outright nullification, um, nullifying the, federal, the, the fugitive slave law of 1850, of, of ignoring um, uh, or, or totally dismissing the Dred Scott decision um, and, and refusing to cooperate, of course, with um, the recapture of runaway slaves. Um, so that, you know, that was interesting to me. And then at the, the, the far extreme of that um, is, is actual disunionists, who I mentioned before, the abolitionists, who were arguing for northern secession from the Union as a way to protest slavery. Um, and, and a lot of people who had this, who who held disunionist um, beliefs in the 1850s, who lived in the North, were actually not abolitionists and really had nothing to do with the anti-slavery crusade in any way. They were simply kind of northern sectionalists. Um, and, you know, this is what the South argued at the time. And I, what, I, what I think is that they weren't totally wrong about that, that there were, you know, northern editors and, and politicians um, who just uh, feared that the North was losing sway in the Union to the South. And that was it. It was only about power. It wasn't about morality, about slavery in any way. Um, so you had a lot of people who say, um, let's secede from, from the union so that we're not um, supporting slavery, so that our taxes or our, um, you know, the, the constitutional guarantees like that the, that the federal government will put down any insurrections or, you know, slave rebellions, for instance, um, so that we're not, we're not lending uh, support to slavery and, and artificially guaranteeing the price of slaves, without which perhaps the, the price and the market and the institution itself would collapse. So that's some people who are actually against slavery, but others are saying, let's secede so that we have nothing to do with this problem at all. And we can just have a free white man's republic, um, was kind of you know the more, the more odious version of that. So that's one thing that really surprised me about the Civil War era, is how um, widespread that, that feeling was, either for disunion or for the expression of of you know um, the defense of states' rights through through the northern states, um, uh, and how late it lasted, you know, um, really till the end of the 1850s. And I think you know the 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 key moment where that really changes is John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry, where the South is now saying, well, you know, we don't really feel safe in this union. And it's only a year later that Lincoln is elected. Um, so that kind of it took me a while, you know, because of course you can argue that. Secession is more of a story in the 1790s than people realize, but you can't really argue the closer you get to the Civil War that this is an underappreciated theme in American historiography. So it took me a while to figure out my approach to the 1850s, but ultimately it was to focus on the North rather than the South and in that way to kind of give a different spin on it. Um, and then I think probably my favorite chapter in the entire book is, is the Secession Crisis chapter. Um, in which I'm showing that there wasn't one secession crisis, there were several. And there were many people, not only in South Carolina or in the southern states, but elsewhere in the country who were saying, well, it looks like this union is crumbling. Perhaps we too should leave, um, whatever happens with the South. Um, 
kind of two, two, two versions of this idea that I find especially interesting is in California, which is actually now a state, of course, after 1850, where, um, you know, the governor supported <laughs> establishing a separate Pacific Coast Republic, much of the congressional delegation of California and of Oregon. Um, so that's that's one idea. Um, and then the second one is this idea of the Central Confederacy, which hasn't really gotten much analysis um in the historiography, as far as I can tell at all, which was an idea that the central states in Maryland, New Jersey, maybe even New York, um, in Virginia, Pennsylvania, should form a separate central confederacy that would hold the balance of power between North and South. They would refuse to let Northern troops march through their territory to invade and, and you know, conquer the South, and in that way, stave off civil war and bring the parties to the negotiating table. Um, and that, you know, that, of course, didn't pan out, especially because of Fort Sumter. Um, but these, you know, this is, again, like kind of the roads not taken that I'm, that I'm interested in. No, and I think it's really helpful because it, 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 it complicates, right, the narrative of the Civil War and gives it more nuance. Um, part four is, is harder. It's, uh, yes. <laughs> it's, a, it, it's called Return of the Repressed. And it's focusing on several periods. It, it moves from Reconstruction to the 21st century, uh, including plans for secession. And you're 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 emphasizing that Reconstruction failed to resolve the conflicts that had led to the Civil War. And here's where you focus most, although it's there elsewhere, on class and race to explore the underlying lack of unity about American purpose. So most of our listeners won't be surprised by the analysis of Reconstruction. But but talk to me about how you see Reconstruction setting up all that follows. And, and I'm also particularly interested in this class versus race, because you toggle between the, the, the both. But you, you here is in the book where you really begin to say that there is this unaccountable um, money power, and it's malevolent, and it's linked sometimes in the book to racism and sometimes it's separate. And, and I'm, I'm so happy to be able to ask you the question. It's, it's so nice to read a book and then be able to just ask <laughs> what the author meant, but help, help. So help me with that. Um, and, uh, I, I, Certainly, yeah. yeah. I mean, well, Return of the Repressed, of course, comes from Freud, but I, I also try to link it to William Seward's famous speech of 1858, The Irrepressible Conflict. Um, and, and, you know, teasing out that metaphor, what it suggests to me is that at one point this conflict had been repressed, which is my understanding of the revolutionary period, the Constitution, is that these divisions that pre-existed that time and that everybody was aware of needed to be repressed and kept under control for fear that they would explode and take the entire country down with them. And then after the Civil War, I think that those conflicts are once again repressed um, and pushed below the surface. You know, the, the Civil War, by the same metaphor, is this humongous trauma um, where, you know, three quarters of a million people die and the country is torn asunder and nobody, including you know, white Southerners really wants to go through that again. Um, they're, they're going to need to find some way to come to a peace uh, without that. And and ultimately, you know, my reading of this of Reconstruction is, of course, you know, informed by Eric Foner and David Blight um, above all. Um, ultimately, what what you, what you have is a failure of of Northern white. Um, I don't know what the word would be. Maybe chutzpah, <laughs> just willingness to to confront the South about what kind of country this is going to be. Once before, in 1861, the North had said, no, we're going to keep this country together. And then two years later, you know, we're going to abolish slavery as well. Um, 
But once that was over, Northerners were not, Northern whites were not willing to fight once again to ensure black political equality. That's the fundamental moment of failure in the 1870s. And there's obviously, um, you know, a lot of historical context to go through about that, much of which I found has to do with the panic of 1873 and the, the kind of decline of of Republican Party's political fortunes even before the 1876 election, which ultimately undoes Reconstruction. Um, but, you know, as I say in the book, I, I think that uh, you ask about race and class. I think that Northern whites ultimately decided to focus more on making money than on ensuring um, the the fruits of the Civil War were were reaped. Um, and, and ultimately, it's that... Um, that submission that defines American politics for the next uh, 75 years, you know, until 1954 or 1964, 1965. Um, and and so, so you, you, you have, after Reconstruction, basically a return to what had been the founding compromise, which is that the South can arrange its, um, you know, its racial affairs, uh, to, to use a, a terrible euphemism, um, as it wants to, which essentially means apartheid. Um, and the North will not will not intervene, will not get in the way of that, and and that is that is the those are the terms on which the country will be will be held together, and that is the way in which everybody can can make money, you know, at least at least the wealthy. Um, so that that's kind of how I see this 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 I don't know if you want to call it a Pax Americana in in kind of a domestic sense, um, kind of holding for for really the, the the first half of the 20th century, which is when the United States rises. Uh, to, to a world power. And the civil rights, you know, struggle kind of tears that apart in a way that I think you, you, you can, is responsible, um, you know, for much of our political divisions uh, up to today. Um, so there's this, this sense of unfinished business about the civil war that I think is precisely why we have, um, you know, Confederate flags being marched through the Capitol today is because the, the civil, the, the, Northern victory in the Civil War was never totally consolidated, um, and yeah, that, does that does that explain? You, you asked a better question than I gave. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely, no, it absolutely does. I just every once in a while, I would I would sense that you were uh, more of an anti-capitalist, and uh, and I wasn't completely understanding what, in terms of an end game, you would want. Uh, to reform plutocracy, to reform the worst aspects of capitalism, they seem to be bothering you. And 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 maybe actually, it's a credit to the book that you really don't uh, reveal your politics about this until the very end, until the conclusion. So it's clear throughout the book that you see this sort of the United States of America as a as a as a consensus-minded cliche that just stops us from having conversation that we need to have about the unfinished business of reconstruction that we started the we started with the idea of of, of trying to create more equal citizenship from uh, for freed people uh, with a d uh, Catherine Frankie calls that the dangling D, and I find that really, really powerful. This idea that you're freed, but that's very different from being free, uh, and all of that work not uh, not being finished. Um, so let's go to the conclusion, actually, because I'm I'm I have so many questions there. So how would breaking up uh, the country 
help address the issues that you seem to care about the most, like climate change, plutocracy, racial antagonism. You know, in terms of the environment, some people might argue that we would see a race to the bottom as states competed to bring businesses in. Uh, would creating more countries uh, help with plutocracy and these the worst aspects of capitalism? And, and, and I, I wondered like whether you had in mind a kind of return to the Montesquieu's federalism that you discuss early in the book, states with greater autonomy in their affairs, who then come together for a few limited purposes, such as national defense or transportation. Uh, I did think that you were a 21st century anti-federalist for part of the book, and, and that would go along with the Montesquieu, that the state should be really strong, take care of their own as if they were small countries, but uh, form a confederation to take care of some limited purposes. Or occasionally, I thought you saw some way to break up the country, you know, have the original 13 go their way, have California and Oregon go their way. So I guess I am a little curious as to whether you're really someone who believes in one nation and wants it to be a better one, um, or whether you really do want to break it yeah, up. Yeah, I mean, my, you, you quoted probably my favorite line of the entire book at the beginning, which is, we must finish the work of reconstruction or give up on the union entirely. The former very, very much remains my preference. I think union, you know, you mentioned my use of Whitman. I go with Whitman and also to a lesser extent Lincoln in that union itself is a beautiful and rather mystical concept. Um, and I would go bigger. I would go internationalist rather than before I went smaller. Um, but you know, my, my, my question is whether that's possible. I, I, I'm not really sure. I kind of don't think so anymore. I don't, I don't know that we're going to be able to finish the work of reconstruction. And I also sometimes wonder, and this gets back to the climate change question, whether internationalism is only possible for Americans by breaking the country up or down into smaller pieces. Um, you know, and I, I, I think here of the Scottish nationalist movement, which wants to secede from the United Kingdom so as to stay part of the European Union. Perhaps should California leave the United States, they would be able to be part of an international effort on climate change more so than they would be in the United States. You know, the Trump administration sued California to try to prevent California from instituting more aggressive carbon emission standards than the rest of the country. And I think that's still in the courts um, and they might well fail at that, but that's the kind of um, policy or issue in which were the, the Trump administration successful in preventing California from doing that, that would be California's membership in the union having an actual cost in efforts to, to ameliorate climate change. Um, I, no, I also think that the United States, were it to choose to actually be part of efforts in a, in a stable way, not only under democratic presidents, um, to, to prevent catastrophic climate change, I think that is actually... Um, I think that is a good reason to stay together. You know, Lincoln said that the United States should hang together, not just for its own purpose, but because the United States had something to teach the rest of the world about democracy. It actually had a good service that it could, that it only by surviving could it fulfill for the rest of the world, for humanity. And I think by, uh, you know, by analogy, that's true today of climate change. So if it does seem like it's going to be possible for us to do something on that, we should stay together. If, if it's not going to be possible, then I think I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure that is the case. Um, you know, break it up. 
should have a question mark uh, at the end of it. It's, it's, you know, I mean, on the one hand, it's my theme. Okay. I mean, it's my theme, you know, okay. the, yeah. the idea of people breaking it up is, is the subject that I'm researching others having throughout history, but the parts of the book that right. are my own opinion, it has a question mark on it. I'm not a hundred percent convinced, okay. but I think that it needs to be an option on the table because all of the downsides um, that you mentioned, uh, you know, corporate power, uh, you know, I'm not sure if you mentioned it, but, but possible, you know, revocation of various civil rights in parts of the country. Uh, it's a word. Yeah. LGBT oh, vulnerability. As, as only as a start, up. for sure. Um, but if it looks like that is where the country as a whole is going, then I would argue for breaking off a part of it and, and trying not to, to go that way. And, 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 um, you know, continuing to hold the standard of the country that, that I think it should be, um, the, the other the other thing is that, and this is where I think you were going with Montesquieu, is one version of a breakup or, or uh, as I say, a breakdown um, of the United States that I can see, I think, going okay would be not to actually dissolve the entire country, but to institute a new level of government between the states and the federal government, regions, you know, eight or 10 or 12 of them that would take most of their power from the states and the federal governments. And you would have, you know, some kind of very, very loose federation of them. But instead of arguing over everything in Washington, we would argue over everything in, you know, 10 or so regional capitals, where I think, um, I think you might get people uh, who are more similar, but that's not really the goal because I'm not trying to, you know, institute Mm -hmm. some kind of cleansing effort or something. But again, it goes back to my supposition that perhaps democracy would be more effective um, and accountable at a slightly more local level, which to me does not mean the county. I'm not a sovereign citizen who doesn't recognize any authority higher than the county sheriff. Um, but I, but I do think that we may be reaching the point where the country is, is so large as to be, you know, in, that, that it's impossible to, to govern effectively. We have, we, we haven't expanded the house of representatives in, um, I think about a century, um, right. which, you know, each person today, uh, I forget what the exact number is, but but when the Constitution was ratified, each congressman represented 30,000 people, whereas today it's closer right. to 700, 750,000, um, which, you know, yeah, maybe that makes me a 21st century anti-federalist. Um, but but it, I think it does make each of us, you know, um, one thirtieth or so uh, less represented in, in, in the federal government. Okay, I want to ask you a bit about the recent insurrection and your book, um, but I want to ask one sort of political science-y question. So uh, I'm a qualitative political scientist. I'm not somebody who does numbers, but historians, political scientists, they, they try to figure out ways to measure any phenomena. And one of the claims that is woven throughout the book is that that our founding was especially disorderly or vitriolic, um, or that you know there's been a perpetual war for the soul of America. So let me play devil's advocate and say, well, you're understating the periods of unity. You're not covering those. And two, do you have a standard for measuring? In other words, the fantasy narrative, and I completely agree with you that that fantasy narrative is, is, is unhelpful, but that can't be the comparison. 
Um, is there something that we can use that would allow you to compare the American experience to other fledgling liberal democracies, other types of governments? Lots of people have really bloody foundings. So yes, people are screaming at each other during the Constitutional Convention. And it is, it is I hate the term founding fathers with capital F double capital Fs. I tell my students this all the time because there's no such thing as founding fathers. They disagreed. There, there wasn't this kind of unity. But if you compare that kind of yelling to the way other nations are founded, is it so bad? Is it, is it so um, as fractious and vitriolic? Uh, if we compare it to Canada where you spent some time and the secession moves uh, from Quebec uh, in the 20th century? Is it so bad? So I, I guess I'm wondering how you how you can measure this. Um, and maybe we can't, but I feel like I should ask the question because it's new books in political science. Yeah, of course. Well, first, I mean, to, to the first point, um, I mean, what, what eras of unity um, are you talking about? I mean, when was America united? Well, I would say you use this marriage analogy throughout the book, which is the only thing I don't like about your book. <laughs> But you use but that, that comes marriage from the analogy. Itself, you know. I know, I know. And I'm but you know, journalists and authors, we all choose which things we want to frame it with. And I, I'm just saying I I love the book. That's the one thing I didn't like. Uh, but if you think about a marriage analogy analogy, well, what do you say about a marriage that lasts a few hundred years and doesn't fall apart? Do you call that a bad marriage because people scream at each other? My parents screamed at each other, but they stayed married. Is that a good marriage or a bad well, marriage? It did, it did fall um, apart and almost a million people died. <laughs> that, that's true. But it came back together. And, and excluded uh, black and, people from the polity for almost a century. <laughs> it, and and women, right. which is uh, which is not something we've talked about because in many ways the unified patriarchy might also be how you could define uh, the the four hundred years of our history. But the country has it, it depends how you define functionality. So yes, we've had apartheid. Yes, we've had patriarchy. We we but. Again, political scientists tend to, to try to measure things. And it's hard to say that this is the most vitriolic place or that that this founding is the is the bloodiest. Oh, I'm certainly when- not saying that. I, I don't have the okay. numbers. Um, um, and perhaps the word especially vitriolic, especially perhaps I'll, okay. I'll, 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 you can ding me a point on. Um. <laughs> no, I don't want to ding you. I don't want to ding you at all. Like I say, I like the book. It's just, it's a... It, but it is it poses this question of of the difficulty of assessing whether something is a functional whether the disunity and the debate is part of some form of function again using mm-hmm. freedom house to measure the the things that are supposed to happen in a liberal democracy and again I'm not excusing any of the enslavement Jim Crowism or the continued inequality in the United States at all, but I, I, I just think it's hard to, to to try to come up with these definitions and make the bigger claims. Sure. That that that's I mean, a, you know, I, the, the marriage has stayed together. But what I'm trying to show is even when there have not been major movements calling for secession and, and for disunion, disunion is constitutive of the union that has held together, the, the, the disunion in the sense of keeping 
an entire group of several groups um, of people out of you know the citizenry, out of the rights of citizenry, that the union was only able to survive on the basis, and this is what I was saying about reconstruction, on the basis of that exclusion. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? So even I, I think you can't really point to any year in our history and say that is when we were united. You point to 1948, 1949, 1950. You have the red scare, you know, going on. You sure. know, the total- but but I. But what what if you look at Italy or France or, uh, in other words, can you find? Uh, so I, I, I'm not. I actually I I agree with you in so many ways. But I'm just saying it's a it's a hard thing to say if you're not comparing it to other countries in some sort of um, in, in in some sort of measure. Well, I do way. say at the end that I think we are more like other countries than than we like to think, you know, in that way, it's a critique of American exceptionalism. I think, you know, when, when, when I, I have a line that, you know, when we look, when we call a country like Syria, you know, a kind of post-colonial mashup of different, you know, ethnicities and polities, you know, and lines drawn by the, by the former imperial power that are all, you know, and, and the country's politics are always fraying and there's different coalitions. I mean, that's America, you know, that's the United States it's, as well. So like, you know, and, and again, I'm not an academic. I'm not. A, I'm not a poli scientist. Um, but you would you would have to look at, um, at 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 you know America's post colonial nature and then settler colonial nature. Um, you know, and I I, I, I you know I, I don't want to. Um, I, I try to do uh, what's the what do I want to say. I hope that the book convinces other people, including those with you know with with more. Um, more, more of a academic framework than myself to do further work on these very questions on both the history of disunion and on the question of what would a breakup look like, who would benefit and who would lose. Um, so, you know, I can't do all of that work in the one book. Um, but I do think, you know, and this is, this, I, I was hoping you would ask about kind of the, 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 um, the paradigm the, it's called the unionist paradigm that I'm using here, which I get from David C. Hendrickson, which is, which is arguing that, the problem of union was the central problem of the American founding more than, you know, and the central theme, you know, more than liberalism or republicanism. It's a union. I see as the the major problem of American history, even when there's not a civil war going on, or there's not a major secessionist movement. Um, this, this question of how you unite, you know, such a f- kind of fractious people in, in a, in a federal right. system is the problem of, of American history, I think, um, and of the American future. You write in the book that a reckoning is coming. It will be a grand spectacle to behold. And as Whitman put it, quote, not for what came to the surface merely, but what it indicated below, which was of eternal importance. And that's from his memoranda during the war uh, written between 1875 and 1876. Your conclusion was written before the 2020 elections and before the insurrection in the Capitol. And and I'm, I'm wondering... Uh, we all we all put books to press, and and then and then things happen. Uh, how you feel now about calling Americans to have this serious discussion? Uh, obviously, this book becomes far more important now that all of these things that have happened. But I'm wondering two things: one, what's your what are some of your takeaways from what has happened in the last week, and also, 
if you still want to have this serious conversation, and I think you do, because I, I think that is the sincere motivation of this book, how, how do you think that might occur? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's really never been more urgent than it is now. Um, I worry that this, you know, MAGA insurgency or something is about to turn into a kind of low-grade civil war um, in, in the style of the Troubles, you know, in the United Kingdom, where you see just regular bombings and assassinations and whatnot. Um in a way that could could spiral into serious violence uh, before too long. Um, you know, the, the United States faced a choice in 1860, 1861, which was to either fight a civil war or to break up. Um, and they fought a civil war so as to avoid breaking up. Um, but I don't want to, I don't want to fight in a civil war. You know, I'd be, I, I'm, I'm of military age. Um, I would rather break up than fight a civil war personally. Um, and I just, I think we need to prepare ourselves for that being the choice um, sooner than, than we might think in the next decade or so. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's more important than ever to, to look at this history. And for Americans, you know, I'm, as, as you say, I try to keep my politics out of it. And, and even, you know, in writing the book, I went back and forth every single day about whether I, you know, supported this union, um, which is, you know, I'm hoping like a productive ambiguity for readers. But mostly I just want to kind of, offer the story up for them and they can add it up and, and decide for themselves what they think about, about it. Um, and how important it is to stay together. And if so, why and how, and, and what we're willing to give up to make that happen. Um, but yeah, so I, I think it's, 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 it's more urgent than ever. How, how does it actually, I mean, honestly, I would have thought that Trump's presidency itself would be considered such a serious national emergency as to, as to stir up this conversation. As, as I mentioned, I started this book long before he became president. Um, and yeah, I guess we've made it uh, to the finish line almost, um, staggering, wounded. Um, but I don't see how much longer it can be put off for. Um, excuse me. Um, you know, you know, Biden is out there kind of reviving this rhetorical tradition that Obama championed of, of unity and a more perfect union and whatnot. And it's just sounding thinner and thinner to my ears um, with, much, with less and less purchase on reality. Um, and I, so I just think uh, that is going to seem pretty much bankrupt within, you know, a few months or years, and and we're going to be left with no choice but to to ask whether the enterprise is worth is worth continuing. Well, I, I want to thank you for taking the time to join me today. I think the book is an extremely helpful conversation starter. If we're going to have the conversation, and I think one thing that we're aware of is that we're not conversing with each other. We're conversing in bubbles. Uh, I think this is this is a good book that gets it started and um, at least puts on the table that there is a problem and it's longstanding and we need to talk about it. Um Richard Kreitner's book is Break It Up, Secession, Division, and the Secret History of America's Imperfect Union. It's published by Little and Brown. Uh, it's available on bookshop.org. We are encouraging everybody during the pandemic to buy your books from brick-and-mortar bookstores. And if you can't get to them, use bookshop.org so that uh, at least the books will ship to your door from them. It's also available on the Little and Brown website, which will direct you to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, et cetera. Richard, thank you so much for joining me today on New Books. Thank you, Susan. Really appreciate it.